You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit savagearms.com. All right, on the podcast again today, I have Ted Bright. And if my memory serves me correctly, this is, I think, the third time that we've had Ted on the podcast. First time or second time we talked about turkey hunting. We also had talked about his uh, deer hunting at one point, but this episode is going to be something a little bit different. It's going to be something that I have wanted to increase my knowledge base on for quite a while, uh, which is wild game cooking. And I've had the pleasure of enjoying Ted's cooking a, a couple times now. Every time we go down to Missouri, we'll have little potlucks uh, with the group. And he's put together just some phenomenal dishes. And he's posting YouTube videos where he does some things with like wild turkey legs that I wish I knew how to do. And just in general, seems to know a heck of a lot more about what he's doing than I do. So I'm hoping that throughout this podcast, we dive into some topics that will kind of help the, uh, the layperson know what to do with their wild game a little bit more. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use and, of course, browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. Well, thank you, Garrett. I appreciate the invite again. And, yeah, I believe you are right. It's the third time. And uh, I, I guess you kind of laid the ultimate teaser for this episode back in one of our previous casts. And uh, I think we just kind of stumbled upon wild game cooking or something, maybe even in the intro, and said, well, we need to – do a, a whole episode about that and well here we are i'm excited yeah you did something really interesting i guess we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but just recently you posted it was like a venison rib dish uh what it looked like on the the post that you made and what was interesting to me is that you included the just the natural venison fat it looked like throughout that dish and it it actually looked good i mean normally i'm throwing away all the venison fat and adding some kind of other fat whether it's you know oil or or whatever else the case is. Uh, but that looked really good. Yeah, thank you. And it turned out really good. You know, I don't know why the the old wise tale of, you know, venison fat is no good. I don't know why that exists. I certainly subscribed to that for, you know, a, a long time, you know, back you know, starting when I was a kid. And I, I don't know. I, for, I think my epiphany was, it, you know, a deer is very similar to a lamb, right? They, they, they look similar. And, um, you know, in my opinion, the meat looks very similar as well. And quite frankly, when I started thinking about it, you know what, they probably taste about as similar as to, you know, a domesticated and a wild animal can get. And so I'm like, I love lamb fat. You know, I love a good lamb chop that has a high fat content. So I just started, and you know, leaving the fat on, and you know, using some of the more primitive cuts, and 
I've definitely come to realize that uh, venison fat is not the enemy. Now, I will say it seems like, you know, venison fat that's in the freezer for a long time, uh, it tends to, have, you know, uh, bring on that more gamey taste and flavor. But that's only if it's not packaged properly or if it is in the freezer for a long time. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And, I mean, certainly from a deer processing standpoint, if you don't have to trim all the fat off, it certainly makes life a whole lot easier and you end up with a little bit more yield. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even back straps, you know, um, I, I used to just always get them just as clean as could be. There was zero silver skin on them, all of this and that, you know, just perfectly clean. And now I'll do that sometimes, but a lot of times I just leave the, the strip of fat on and yep. the silver skin because it, you know, not only does it add extra flavor, but it protects the meat when you're doing that like high intensity char at the end or, you know, however you are cooking it, you know, it protects that meat and you can always cut it off at the end. So hmm. that is in, in general, that's one of the concepts that I adhere to is trying to keep it as whole as possible until the very, until the last possible minute. Interesting. No, I've, I've heard something similar with, uh, watching a, a salmon cooking video from Gordon Ramsay where he left, he's like, I want to leave the skin on because I can just torch that skin and it's going to end up cooking the meat really well. And if you don't want the skin at the end, you can, you know, get rid of it, but it ends up turning out tasting pretty good too, and nice and crispy. And I wonder if that's not, you know, something a little bit similar because I've always noticed that, yeah, that even if you got that nice little layer of back fat on the top of the back strap, that silver skin, you would think would be still pretty tough even after you cook it like you would normally cook a back strap. So do you usually end up cutting that off when you cook it that way? Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, you know, so some people will cut it out or whatever. A lot of times I just end up eating it. It's, it's not nearly as tough as what it looks and feels like in the raw form, you know. Um, but there, you know, on, in certain spots it's, it's thicker, you know, when you get towards the end of the back strap. Uh, and, you know, I get it. So some people aren't going to want to even – uh, you know, have that little bit of toughness to their filet, but it, to me, it doesn't really bother it, but it's, uh, there's no doubt about it that the, the salmon analogy is perfect because, you know, you can throw salmon on, on a flat out fire and that skin, it just protects it perfectly. It allows you to cook the meat at a high temperature, much higher than you could without that protection. And, uh, you just take it off at the end if you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So out of curiosity, I mean, is there anything ever on a deer now that you'll take and like make into a more processed meat, like a, either a sausage or like a snack stick type of a thing? Or are you pretty much always either doing, you know, just the raw kind of primal cuts and, or grinding, or do you even not even grind that much and, and just mostly stick with the, the cuts in their more pure form? No, we definitely use a lot of ground venison. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, ground venison is perfect for you know, sloppy joes, spaghetti sauce, you know, all of the above, whatever. It's so versatile. We basically don't ever buy ground beef. We typically, our family consumes about six to eight deer a year. And so what I, I like to process them myself, uh, but I'll just save all the trimmings throughout the season in gallons of block bags and freeze them and then take them to the processor and have them grind it. And I, I at that point, I typically do have, have them add either pork fat or beef fat 
if I go one or the other, then I would definitely choose beef fat. But I do like to mix in a few, uh, you know, whatever, 10% of it or whatever with, um, with pork fat, just for a little bit of different flavoring and such, you know. Uh, but yeah, so we definitely get our fair share of scraps ground into ground venison. And uh, we also like sausage, you know, so I kind of had it figured out to where which processors, you know, in the area do the best job. So we will uh, typically get a jalapeno cheese sausage that has a pepper crusted shell, like a black pepper shell on the outside. Mm-hmm. It's so good. I can't find anywhere else that does it, but this one place down in Steelville does it. And so it's, it's real close to, uh, you know, some of the places where I hunt. So uh, that's more like the, the cooked summer sausage style. Yeah. Um, so you like to get some of that. And then there's a place a little bit closer to me that does the old world style, the, uh, you know, the, the true smoking and curing, and it takes months, you know, Last year, I didn't get my uh, my October or November batch back until I think it was uh, April. I, it was right before turkey season, I think. And you know, so it, that's a long, much longer process. Uh, but you get a true dry cure, and man, we really love that. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't think I've gotten that that level before. Every once in a while, we'll get either sticks or, or like a summer sausage made. Honestly, part of the <laughs> It's like you, you go in there and you, you give them like 30 pounds of meat or whatever. And the bill is just like, holy crap. Like, I don't know how people that just shoot their one deer and just like take the full gutted deer and just hand it off to the processor. Their bill must just be enormous every year. But I do, I do definitely like every now and then a good, you know, a good sausage, uh, or snack stick style, uh, of venison. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're so true there. And, you know, when not only would it be expensive for, you know, your average person that's killing one or two deer a year and they're taking the whole thing to the processor, not only is it outrageously expensive, but it's an inferior product because these processors are are not allowed to, uh, to, uh, to hang their meat that's brought in by the general public and not certified to some extent more than three days. And I, I don't know if that's USDA across the uh, United States or if that's like uh, particular to Missouri, but it, I know that for local processors, it's three days and that's just not enough. So you, you're in the camp of people who like to hang your deer for a longer period of time. Is that before you take the skin off or even like after you take the skin off of just kind of letting that meat age, so to speak? Uh, I'll do it skin on if, if hanging outside, you know, I think you get a little bit of protection, but uh, ideally I would have a walk-in cooler, which I don't, and I would skin the animal uh, and get it cooled down as rapidly as possible. And I like to, I like about a 15 to 20 day uh, aging process. So obviously I don't have a walk-in cooler. Uh, so what I typically will do is quarter up the animal and get it in. I have a refrigerator in the garage that, that's the primary objective is to for aging venison. Uh, my wife seems to multi-use other things for it, but uh, in the fall, typically there's deer in there, you know. Interesting. And that enables me to, uh, you know, to get that 15 to 20 day age. And and I've gone out past that. I think like 24 days is the longest. 
But I have found around that 20 to 21 days, um, the consistency gets too soft. It's, it's almost like it's just too tender. The flavor's great, but there's just like not enough. It's almost like the enzymes break down the meat so much that it's, it's kind of like mush. Um, so, uh, you know, that 15 days is what I shoot for. Well, so when you do that, is is there at the end of that, you know, 20, 21 days, is there some portion of the exterior of the meat that you have to then trim off to get the good stuff inside? Like, do you lose some percentage of what you started with after you age it, or are you able to pretty much use that entire, you know, cut of meat still? No, when, when you age it that long, I, I say probably anything out past, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 days, you start to get a, a dry, almost like a casing or shell or whatever, uh, you know, on the exterior of it. And it's not that it wouldn't hurt you, but it's just not, you know, it's just kind of tough and dry. So, you know, you would typically remove that just like you would if you go to a, a prime steakhouse and you order the 60 day dry, uh, dry age ribeye, you know, there's, um, in fact, some of these that go hundred and 120 days, they're actually cutting mold off of the, off of the outside of the meat. But, um, yeah, after that, you know, 10 or 12 day mark, you're probably going to have to do a little bit of trimming. So for that free or that refrigerator that you have set up for that, is there any kind of like special, you know, either just dehydration or ventilation or any kind of special considerations for having that kind of optimal environment or does just a general refrigerator with nothing else in it tend to do pretty good? Uh, general refrigerator. I have experimented with putting, you know, like a canister of salt in there just to absorb some moisture. I don't really notice a difference. But I'm also at the same time not trying to quantify it. I'm not monitoring the humidity level or anything like that to, you know, it's, so it's just at that point, it just becomes anecdotal. Um, but I would like to find a way to get it drier. I just haven't embarked upon that yet. Okay. Uh, but as far as, so as far as the refrigerator itself goes, uh, you know, you can move the shelving units around. So I use oven racks to place the meat on because you don't want you know, especially like the large flat surface of a hind quarter laying on another flat surface where it, you know, there's going to be some blood that gets in between there and it's going to stay real wet. You know, you want air circulation to the entire piece of meat if possible. Um, so I use oven racks and then I just, you know, configure the shelving units accordingly to where I have plenty of room that I can, uh, you know, uh, stand the, the quarters and the, you know, the back straps and, you know, however I cut it up, uh, place it in there with good air circulation. Okay. And, and so you pretty much like to keep the chunks of meat as whole as possible during that process. And then once you're, once you're done, you take it out, put it on, you know, a cutting board and take your, your, uh, you know, cut up your quarters and, and more manageable pieces. Uh, yeah, I certainly will do that. Or, you know, ideally you take it out after 15 days and you put it directly on the grill. Uh, so that's another thing that I like to do is I would prefer to not freeze the raw meat. Although I do, I definitely will. I'll take a whole hindquarter and freeze it. Uh, but ideally I just think that it works out better if you age it and then cook it and then you freeze the cooked meat. For whatever reason, I think hmm. it just it just it just freezes better. 
You must have a big freezer. I, I feel like my, none of the freezers I have in my house would be able to fit an entire hindquarter all at once, unless it's like a big chest freezer, which obviously wouldn't be ideal. And it, do you you cook it? Yeah. You you cook it through, and I'm assuming you're slow cooking a, a big portion of meat like that. Like, or you said you I guess so, you put it on the grill. Like, how do you cook an entire quarter of meat at once? Okay, so you're I was. I'm glad that you asked that because I saw it in, in your notes and I definitely wanted to expand on that. So then uh, this is just my thoughts. Again, I have not had any type of formal uh, cooking uh, education or anything like that, but just kind of self-taught. But I, I think that, you know, the, the hind quarter of a deer, the hind leg is going to be more of your, your fast switch muscle fiber type of uh, meat. So that type of meat typically cooks better in a high heat, um, you know, and then lower temperature at the end. So temperature as in like a medium rare, you know, so uh, usually when I cook a hindquarter, I'm going to cook it on a higher heat. Like, so I'll get a flame going and I'll cook that thing just off the flame. So almost, you know, direct, but not quite. And I'm going to cook it at a higher temperature for, you know, for not very long. Now, uh, in contradiction to that would be the front shoulder, which is more slower twitch muscle fiber. There's a lot more collagen and connective tissue in there. And that type of meat typically is going to do better with a low and slow cooking process. So on that, I will, you know, put it all the way to the other end of the grill from the fire. And that's going to be more, you know, of a, you know, a 68-hour cook versus the hindquarter, which is going to be a one to two hour cook for a larger piece of meat. So you're basically just like searing it, that, that uh, rear quarter, you're, you're trying to get that good sear on both sides and then you back the temperature back down and let it kind of cook for, you know, an, an hour or two or whatever, whatever test you have to know when it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, typically I'm going to, I'm going to aim for like 120 to 130 on the hindquarter and and pull it off and then one thing that i think is always worth the uh, the extra effort is let it sit let it, let that meat come to a thermal halt covered with aluminum foil for 10 minutes before you cut into it and that's almost you know just across the board whether it be a chicken thigh or a new york strip or a venison leg let it come to a thermal halt and what will happen is the uh Basically, your moisture content is going to, uh, you know, through osmosis and then and, and temperature. Um, what is that, Garrett? You're the engineer here. <laughs> like, I guess it'd be like homeostasis here, or it comes to an equilibrium all throughout. You'll lose a lot less moisture when you cut into it. Gotcha. So you're just, you're letting it cool off, and and yeah, the I, I believe the technical terminology for that is you just have the conductive heat transfer. Uh, through the the bulk of the meat, the areas of high temperature will you know slowly push that heat to the areas of of cooler temperature until you get yeah homeostasis is not a bad word to to kind of describe that um, that meat cooling process. But you <laughs> you cook it it sounds like just with the meat and then you take it off and wrap it in foil for ten and for whatever that time is as you're cooling it down like you're not cooking it in the foil or are you cooking it on the foil? Uh, I've done that on you know, for your like front shoulders and stuff, you know, similar to how I would do it with the, 
uh, with a pork butt or a brisket, you know, once you get to, you know, that three quarters of the way through the, the grilling process, then, then wrap it in foil. Uh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. But when I, you know, just if I'm pulling a, a, a venison leg off the grill that I, I haven't wrapped it in foil for the cooking process, I would definitely put it, I would put it directly on the tray that I'm going to cut it on and then cover it with foil for 10 minutes. Okay. That way, what juices do escape, you're keeping them. Yeah, I've never tried that. I've always, even when I cook a backstrap or something as like a, a whole, you know, eight inch chunk, I've always just got done cooking it and then just like set it on a cutting board and just, you know, leave it sit there for 10 minutes. I've never thought to, you know, kind of wrap it to help get a more consistent sort of thermal shell around the meat for it to do its cool down process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you are more inclined to, you know, to like the, like a more medium temperature and, uh, you know, anything higher than that, and we just probably don't need to talk, uh, or be friends or anything. So, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but if you do like it more of a medium, uh, then, you know, before you cover it and let it sit for 10 minutes, that would be the time where, uh, and I do this even sometimes, even though I like it medium rare, I'll add, you know, butter or bacon grease, you know, whatever it is I feel like adding to it just because, you know, at the end of the day, even if you're leaving all this fat on there, venison is still a very lean meat. So it, it never hurts to incorporate a little bit of extra, uh, you know, for flavoring and, and moistness purposes. When you go to grill a piece of meat that has been aged in your refrigerator and it, let's say it has that little rind that, that has, you know, that's on the outside of the meat. Are you literally just like taking it from that refrigerator and slapping it right on the grill? Or are you kind of trimming it first or are you seasoning it for, you know, several hours and before you cook it, are you letting it come up to kind of a, a room temperature before we throw it on the grill? What's your process there? So for years I did that, you know, just even if it was a beefsteak or whatever, you know, I had it in my mind that, you know, bringing a piece of meat to room temperature was the, a better way to do it. But, uh, and I've, I've, I've heard so many people say that, but I, I've kind of stumbled onto the opposite uh, just for, through my own trial and error. And it makes sense because I like my meat, you know, like a medium rare. So if, if it takes longer to cook that, that, that very middle of the meat, you know, the, the, uh, the toughest part for the heat to reach uh, if you can start off with that being cooler, it makes sense to me that I'll be able to get the, um, you know, the, the slight char or the, you know, the, uh, uh, the bark, I guess you could say, like on a brisket, you know, on the exterior and still have that good medium rare in the middle. I think that you can achieve that easier if you just go from, say, you know, 40 degrees to the grill versus 70 degrees to the grill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and it probably, I would imagine, it must depend also on just kind of the thickness of that piece of meat that you're ending up throwing on the grill. Because, um, yeah, the, I, I think the theory behind that, letting it come up to room temperature, is, is sort of the same reason that you would that you would rest your meat afterwards, right? You're, just, you're decreasing that amount that that temperature gradient is, um, and so you're hopefully able to get your bark, and then everything underneath the bark is kind of more consistent um, versus just like, it being almost uncooked in the middle and then like overcooked on the outside. 
is I think what they're, what they're trying to protect against. But obviously what you're describing is showing that it can be done the opposite and still be done pretty effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I really don't worry about that too much. Um, you know, it's more like the, for me, that's just kind of, again, anecdotal observations where uh, there's many more important factors to the equation, you know? Um, and, and you had asked about trimming. So uh, let's say I have a piece of a whole hindquarter that's in there for 15 days. Um, I've done it before where I just don't trim it at all. And I just lather it up with uh, olive oil just to soften and moisturize that exterior shell. And that definitely works. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I should probably do that more now that I think about it. I've done that a few times and it seems to work really well. Um, but uh, most of the time it just seems like I, you know, do some minor trimming to it. Uh, I don't always rub it down with olive oil. I, again, I don't, not rhyme or reason to it, but I definitely season it and season it pretty heavily because, you know, I want to be able to eat a piece of the, you know, the rare to medium rare meat directly, you know, from the very center, right next to the bone, which has the most flavor in it from a natural flavor perspective and, and a piece of the bark on the outside together. I want that in the same bite. And, uh, uh, yeah. So you gotta, you know, I, what most people would consider over seasoning the outside most likely is, uh, that's how I like it. Do you go for, I mean, obviously I would imagine salt is probably part of your normal seasoning, but do you try and just like do themes based on what you're trying to cook? Or do you have like kind of a, a tried and true set of seasonings that you'll go and grab when you try and season your meat? Yeah, I don't ever keep anything the same. I don't ever follow recipes like we were talking before we were recording. You know, to me, cooking is, an, is much more of an art than a science. Um, so I, I probably don't ever season the same piece of, of uh, the same cut of meat twice. Uh, the same, but you know, it's hard to go wrong with salt, pepper, and garlic powder. You know, to me, that's the basis for almost any seasoning of beet. Um, you know, I rarely do I uh, really like seasoning blends that you would buy pre pre blended. You know, yep. But uh, there are two two that I find very very good, and that is adobo seasoning and Montreal steak seasoning. Is really good, also. Yeah, I do. I do like the Montreal steak. That is a good mix. Is the so we talked about the you know, like the hind quarter and more of your like fast twitch meats, um, and how you like to cook those hot and then slow. And I kind of do when I cook backstraps or, or tenderloins. I, I guess less so tenderloins, more so backstraps. Um, or if I'm just trying to cook just a general chunk of meat from like the hind quarter, I think I cook it similarly, but maybe not quite as quite the same as you in that oftentimes I use a cast iron and get it going on the stove top and then put it in the oven. And it seems like that works really well. Most of the time, again, it's kind of a guessing game and an art, just how long you leave it in the oven. Um, and sometimes I'll just try and like poke it with my finger to tell if it's done or not. But I, I never usually get that really thick, like bark, like you describe. Cause it, like I'll, I'll picture like a brisket and that's like my frame of reference. And I never quite get it like that. Like it'll be a nice thin, like firm, you know, dark brown, um, surface, but, um, I, I would imagine maybe I need a little bit higher heat, a little bit more seasoning to get more of that, uh, that, you know, full, I guess, textured flavored surface of the meat. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's difficult to get that on the uh, with the grain cuts. You know what I'm saying? So when you take your backdrop, you're you're keeping it whole. We're cutting it into yeah. two sections, maybe. Yep. And grilling them side by side, long ways though, right? Yeah. I find it challenging to get that type of char on cast iron. So, you know, when you picture everybody getting that good sear on a, on a, like a, a ribeye or something in the cast iron, that's against the grain cut, you know, where you're laying mm-hmm. a big piece of meat with a lot of open fibers uh, on the bottom. And I, I, that works really well with cast iron. But when I'm cooking a backstrap and you're going long fibers with the grain, uh, I like a non-stick pan. Hmm. Okay. I haven't tried that. So, uh, yeah, when I'm cooking a backstrap, and I'll do it the same way, like I'll cut it into two long sections uh, and, you know, put some uh, olive oil and butter in a, in a non-stick and uh, like thyme, I uh, really like thyme and, and fresh garlic in there. And I'll get enough olive oil and butter to where I actually take a spoon and kind of and just continually baste it on top of the the cuts of meat. And with it, with that method, you can kind of work the the backstrap against the the curl of the pan, and you'll get that char, you know, at at a good medium high temperature. Okay, I'll have to try that. I guess it's more it's more like a bark than a char, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I mean, it seems easy enough to try. I, mean, I wonder if also another way to do that would just be to, you know, cut medallions before you cook, but just make them thicker so you are less likely to, to turn a, you know, slice a backstrap into a well-done piece of meat. Yeah, yeah, that's the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. So is there, would you say that you're like mostly a grill guy when it comes to venison and that stovetop cooking or oven cooking is kind of like the, the lesser, at least when it comes to those um, cuts that are, are better cooked that way, those fast twitch uh, cuts, or do you still kind of use just a general mix of cooking methods for those? I, I mean, I always like cooking on the grill the best, right? You get the most complex flavor profile, you know, because you've got the, the, the fire and the smoke and uh if I can make it happen, then that's going to be my, uh, my default method, but you know, you, you gotta be versatile. So, you know, the, the rib, the standing rib roast that you had just seen just last night, I guess. Yeah. Um, that we were at my sister's house and her grill, uh, quit. I don't know what happened to it, but it wasn't working. And she has a new grill, but it was my brother-in-law's Christmas present. So we couldn't bust (laughs) that out, obviously. (laughs) So, I was reduced to uh, cooking them in the oven, and I've never cooked a standing rib roast in the oven. But you got to be versatile, and you know I just made it work, and it turned out really, really good. So, how do you prepare that that piece? Is that just like the entire slab of ribs just sawed off the spine, uh, with all the flank meat and everything that's that's kind of I guess all those layers of of tissue that are on top of the ribs, or is there some other type of preparation that exactly. goes into that? It's all that stuff. Okay. No, all that. And, and there, I have done this a few times now where I've kind of got the process, uh, down pat. And so what I do is, so just, you know, in, in case there's, uh, listeners that aren't familiar with, with 
cutting their own venison up. Um, when we say standing rib roast, we're talking about the, the entire ribs, you know, from inside casing next to the stomach uh, to, like Garrett said, that outer fat layer and ribs tip to tip, you know, the rib as it would be on the deer down by the, the bottom of the belly all the way up to the spine. So the way I do that is I, you know, of course, I'm pull the hide down and I will make my incision along the spine, just like I would if I was going to cut out the back strap by itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you know how you, you, it's, it's, it's a combination of cutting and uh, leveraging your fingers down through there, you know, yep. where your, your hands are so cold, they just want to fall <laughs> off, right? Uh, and so I separate them as, as best as possible. And then uh, I just take a reciprocating saw and cut straight down that spine. So the, my first couple of times of doing that, I would inevitably get into the spine on a few of those cuts, and it's a pain in the butt because you can't slice down each rib and pull it apart. You, you know, you end up having a little bit of spine connecting those ribs, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the best way to dull your knife, you know, it's a pain in the butt. But just, you know, be careful about working that reciprocating saw down there, or sawzall, as most people call it. Um, and, yeah, so you want to cut each rib, and you've already pulled the, uh, the strap, the back strap, off of the spine, so it gives you a little bit of playing room there. And then, you know, you just have to cut out along the ribs on the top and the bottom, and then there you go. That's – I'm going to – the next year I kill, I'm going to try that because that's – one of my biggest pet peeves and the thing I hate about that, that part of the animal is I always feel like the fat to meat ratio is, is so there's, there's so much more fat layers and kind of connected tissue layers there than there is actual meat. I always feel like I'm fighting a losing battle trying to get like, you know, even, even just grind meat from the ribs. Cause there's like, there's there's layers and there's, I can see the meat, but it's like, I try and get the meat and the amount of work that it takes to get all the, the meat away from the fat it always seems like it's it's more work than it's worth, and I end up with not as much as I'm hoping. But that that method, I mean, you're getting all the meat. It's you know, I'm trying to think of a, a parallel, but it's it's like when you're cooking a turkey leg, and it's like yeah, you can or like a shank in the oven. It's like man, you, you try and you know get a little bit of that meat cut away from the bone, and you always feel like you're leaving some there. But if you just roast that sucker whole, it's like you're getting all the meat plus all that you know those complex flavors from all the, the stuff that just kind of melts and turns into jello. So is it kind of a similar type of thing with this uh, standing rib roast that you're getting all of those flavors from the, the fat and all the different layers that kind of um, come together as you cook that entire thing whole? No question about it. I mean, uh, you saw all the pictures from that, you know, it, you're, you're not going to get a backstrap to, it, it'll look juicy, but it won't glisten in the light with, with fat, basically, you know, that good fat content, uh, like it will if you keep it whole, like we just described with the standing rib roast, to where that fat is just, you know, simmering that, you know, it's melting and it's caramelizing on the outside and it's just, you know, flowing through the meat, that, uh, you know, down as, you know, gravitationally. And oh, it will, it's just, it's a superior way to do it. Do you cook it? I'm assuming you lay the thing flat but do you cook it with the kind of the fat side up and the, what would be the stomach yes, side down? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. 
definitely. Is it just a low and slow, or do you sear that somehow first too? Uh, no, I would, I would go probably like a, a middle of the road between low and slow and and you know high direct because you still have that backstrap there. You know, even though you're getting the you know, that the the fat drippings and the extra flavor and everything. You know, I, I wouldn't want to put that real low and slow because it it certainly could dry out on you. Yeah. So, like for example, last night I I'd never cooked it in the oven before, so it was kind of experimental. I just went ahead and threw it in on 350, and I didn't even like time it or anything. I'm so bad about that. But I would say they probably cooked for about 45 minutes, and I pulled them out and I. I just made a little bit of a glaze and I, it was just a total concoction like mustard and brown sugar. And, uh, Oh, I think there was a little bit of uh, hot sauce in there and honey and uh, garlic and salt, pepper, you know, whatever else, a little bit of red wine, I think. And so I made this little bit of a glaze and I poured it over top and then I, I broiled it uh, just to, you know, get that little bit of extra um, bark on the outside and a little bit more melting of the fat because I could just see it was still looked really thick on there, you know? Yep. And then I just left it sit in the oven while the oven was off, you know, until everything else was ready. And it turned out perfect. When I first pulled it out and I cut into one of the, cut down along one of the ribs, uh, the fat, the fat back looked a little bit thick to me. Uh, I would have liked to have seen that rendered and cooked it a little bit more. But when I ate it, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And uh, you'll appreciate this. I found it interesting uh, because how many side conversations have we had recently about the amount of acorns here? Well, you know, an acorn is like any other nut. It's super high in fat content. And as I was eating that, that fat back last night, which was really thick, um, it had a, a, a nutty flavor to it. Huh. And I, you know, I, I can't say it, it surprised me at all because, uh, well, I mean, I shot that dough uh, two weeks ago or, you know, whatever. I think it had aged for like 11 days. Um, uh, so I shot it like two weeks ago over acorns. And, you know, I mean, we've talked about numerous times that acorns around here are ridiculous this year. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I know that when people talk about black bears – and I, I haven't really eaten much black bear, but that's one thing that I always hear is that the flavor, and, and obviously a bear is just in general, I think a fattier animal. Um, but they always say that the flavor of the meat and whatever else you're, you're cooking definitely depends a lot on what they eat. You know, whether they're eating kind of, you know, berries and acorns, natural browse, or if they're, you know, feeding on garbage. Um, and that really translates to the meat. So yeah, I'm not really surprised either to, to see that that, that uh, meat and that fat took on kind of a nutty flavor. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Now you said you leave the, the backstrap meat on that, that cut as you kind of put it in and cook it. I suppose you could probably also, if you wanted to cook your backstrap separate, just run that whole backstrap off and then take your sawzall and just cut the ribs off and, and uh, just cook that without the backstrap attached. Yeah, you certainly could. Uh, I don't. I, maybe I'd done it a long time ago, but not really. You know, I haven't done it recently. There, there's just something about you know taking a bite of that fat back and and the, you know the more 
like the, I guess you could say probably the tougher um, strips of like the, the, what do you call it? Like almost like the flanks, I guess you could say, that, you know, the strips that go in between the fat layers on the outside of the ribs. There's something that's said for having a bite of all of that together, you know, with the back strap. And I, I don't know, I would just keep it whole. I, just worth it for me, but you can certainly do that differently. But again, you know, like you said earlier, there's just not a whole lot of meat on those ribs. Right. And so if you were to cook something like that whole, like the entire thing at once, and let's say you're not cooking for a family get together where it's, it might all be eaten at once. You would go ahead and just, you'd instead of just taking a little bit of time and cooking, you'd probably, it sounds like prefer to cook the whole thing at once, eat what you're going to eat, and then freeze the rest of it already cooked? Yes. Yes, definitely. And then when you go to reheat it, the next time you want to take it out, how are you how are you heating that up in a way? Because obviously, like, anything in the microwave reheated never tastes as good the first as it did the first time. So are you just kind of putting it in the oven to just get it back heated up? Do you throw it back on the grill? How do you How do you get something that's cooked and then frozen back to its you know the second time well i i wouldn't necessarily freeze it and try to eat it in the same way so if you know for example if we had these uh you know standing rib chops left over we would eat them the next day or maybe you know the day after that and just put them in the refrigerator uh so then whatever's left after a few days it's in the fridge you know i would probably cut the meat off the bones because there's no point in freezing the whole bone that just takes up freezer space yeah. Uh, with the bones, you know, of course you can make bone broth or stock and, you know, those bones are perfect for the dogs too. My dog absolutely loves deer bones. I mean, she carries them around in her mouth like candy, but, uh, so anyway, what, if I'm going to freeze that meat and I'm probably going to repurpose it into a different form. Um, like you said, you know, you, the, the meat is medium rare. For us, anyway, once you get anything cooked more than that, then it just gets dry and it's just not that good. Until you transform it, you know, to uh, uh, you know shredded hot beef sa- or hot venison sandwiches, you know, or Philly cheesesteaks or fajitas or whatever the case may be. So that's more likely what I would do with that is find a way to reincorporate it into something else. Okay. When you do those types of dishes, are you using because I've seen those too, and I think we had a dish like that that you brought the first time in Missouri, where it looked like just a giant crock pot full of like shredded venison with a whole bunch of other stuff along with it. And I can't remember if we just ate it as is or if we had some other you know side dish with it, but that was really good. Um, and so when you make like a shredded like a big shredded venison dish, are you originally cooking that in a crock pot? low and slow for however many hours it takes, or do you have some other kind of method that you use to, to make that type of a dish? Uh, so yeah, yeah, that would typically, that's how I would do that is, uh, you know, cook it in a crock pot or on the stove top. I, I prefer a stove top with a thick copper top or copper bottom, uh, pot better than a crock pot, but crock pots are just fine. You know, and we use that sometimes also, um, but the the best way to do it is to smoke that whole venison leg, right? So here, all right, so this, kind of back up and look at a big picture here. So let's say I've got a, a deer that's been aged for 15 days in the fridge, and I'm going to grill the hindquarter that night for dinner. 
Well, I'll also just go ahead and throw because that hind quarter, I'm going to cook it just off the fire. I'll throw, I'll season and throw the front quarter, the the front leg, all the way to the other side of the grill and just smoke it, knowing that I have no plans of eating that anytime soon. And then you know, once it's done, and you don't even, it doesn't have to be cooked to temperature or whatever. You know, you can just literally throw it on there and let it absorb the flavors that it gets from the smoke and the fire and the grilling process. And once you pull your meat off for dinner that night, just let it sit out there until the grill dies down and it's, you know, the temperature of whatever it is outside. And then I'll I'll take that thing off the grill and, uh, you know, of course, label it. And I always, the one thing I started a few years ago that I, I always will add to my labeling process is, what the deer is, what the date was, but I always add how many days was aged because I do want to quantify that and scientifically track it versus just, you know, anecdotally observing and talking about it. So once you, you know, you smoke that, uh, that front shoulder and it just hangs out in the grill and doesn't sing, pull it off, label it, and um, you can, if you can vacuum seal it, that's great, but... If you kill a big buck, you're not going to get that thing in the vacuum seal bag. So you just got to take like a, a roll of saran wrap and just wrap the shit out of it as good as you can get, you know, to where it's wrapped very thoroughly and put it in the freezer. And then when you pull it out to make your, uh, you know, venison stew or whatever it is that you're going to, uh, you know, cook low and slow and add other things to it, like veggies, like we did for the trip last year, um, now you've got a much more complex flavor profile with very minimal effort, right? Because you were already grilling yeah. for dinner that night and it just hung out in the back. So then uh, once you take that off, it'll have such a better flavor than if you just took the raw front shoulder and cooked it in a crock pot. Hmm. Now, have you ever tried like a, like a wood chip smoker to, to kind of smoke the meat as opposed to just kind of, you know, the backseat on the grill? Uh, I, I don't have a pellet grill. Um, I mean, I've got the, uh, what is it? The Oklahoma Joe's, I think with the side firebox. So I can do, you know, legitimate indirect smoking, Yeah. but it's all through a managed fire that I'm having to oversee. It would be nice to go to a pellet smoker, but I got to tell you, I also really enjoy the art of uh, managing the fire and putting you know, I use hickory and cherry as my favorite combination. So, uh, you know, every every step along the way, you're making decisions and everything versus, you know, setting it and walking away and coming back 10 hours later. Don't get me wrong, there's value there too, and I'm excited to get there one of these days, but I haven't done it yet. Hmm. Yeah, I have one of those just electric smokers that uh, it's not very big. I wouldn't be able to throw a whole quarter in there. Um, I'd be able to put in pieces at a time but basically could do, you know, you throw your hickory chips in the bottom and you, you turn it on whatever temp and, and how, how just let it run for, you know, however many hours. Um, the display on it is, is pretty much crapping out. So if you want to say there's some art in the cooking there, I pretty much have to guess at what the temperature is, um, put a thermometer because <laughs> I cannot read it off that display. Right, right. And that's one thing I really haven't tried is I haven't tried. I've used that smoker for fish. Uh, you know, salmon uh, is, is really good, obviously, on it. Um, I've used it for uh, the pork 
from that little pig I shot in Saddlepalooza. Uh, but I have not yet tried smoking venison on it as like a precursor step to then going ahead and slow cooking it, but it's got to taste pretty good. Yeah, it it definitely adds uh, just a whole other level of flavor profile to it. And I, don't get me wrong, like just throwing a, a venison leg or even just a roast into a crock pot or a roasting pan or stove top and slow and low cooking it is absolutely delicious but it's just next level when you have that fire and flame and smoky uh attributes to it yeah when you do get to the step where you're either putting it in a pot or you're putting it in a crock pot for that you know second slow long and slow process what are you putting else you know besides the venison itself what else goes in that pot are you putting you know broth in there are you putting just water what else do you have in there to add moisture and whatever else you know seasonings uh so a lot of times i will just do a mirepoix which is you know onion carrots and celery and water you know that's kind of the base for what you know the the low and slow cooking process and breaking it all down and then so i i like to do that where you've got onions carrots and celery in there that will almost just get real super soft and just become part of the broth itself. Mm-hmm. I will usually go back and add, you know, if I'm, if I'm making a stew with it, I will add, you know, along with the other veggies, you know, cause you can, whatever veggies you want, I'll add more carrots, onions, and celery that go more along with the, the cooked veggies versus the ones that are almost just homogenous in there with the rest of the broth. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, are you generally, putting in like just enough liquid to keep things from drying out or do you have that, you know, whatever chunk of meat it is, you know, kind of soaking and quite a bit of moisture? Uh, no, I, I like to like just cover it. You don't want too much moisture because you can always add, it's easy to add. Uh, and I don't usually just use water. I, I, I use all kinds of different stuff, but you know, red wine, uh, beer, I, I like a lot of Worcestershire sauce. Um, in fact, I would say on average when I'm cooking these types of dishes, I'm probably only using 40 to 50% water, and the rest of it is uh, apple cider vinegar, probably my, my go-to, and then all of these other things like uh, you know a beer, some wine, uh, Worcestershire sauce, uh, you know whatever the case may be. But apple cider vinegar really goes a long way um, versus just plain water. And those, all of those things are going in right from the beginning with your onions, carrots, and, and celery, or are those things that you add in a little bit later in the cooking process? Uh, every time it's probably different, <laughs> but definitely going to start off with the, you know, water and apple cider vinegar uh, if I was in a hurry, then I, uh, I would certainly be okay with just starting with that and then adding, you know, according to taste and smell later. Um, but there's, I'm sure there's times where I'm also adding those, some of that at the beginning too. Okay. Yeah. I'm getting some good ideas here. And for the longest time, it's kind of funny. The longest time, whenever I made the low and slow dishes, I always thought that I was cooking them too long because I would test them after like six hours and they would still be kind of like tough feeling. And it took me a while to actually figure out that I needed more time 
that I, I couldn't really overdo it. I just had to keep cooking it until it became, you know, like fall apart soft. That was kind of a learning experience for me. Same thing with turkey legs. Yeah, yeah. It takes a long time to break down that collagen and connected tissue. Yeah, for sure. But the end result is is almost always worth it. Yeah, definitely. Your patience will be rewarded, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have any, I guess on the flip side, any like favorite fast dishes, whether it's like ground venison or like whatever else? Like if you... If you just want to make a quick dinner and let's say you got whatever you want, you know, thought out already that you could use, um, what is kind of your go-to or, or do you just kind of wing it with whatever and, and just kind of put together something that, uh, at moment's notice? Uh, no, there's, uh, I mean, to me, it's just like any other, you know, uh, meat or any other red meat anyway. And that. You know, there's there's various ways you can do you know the fast and um, high heat type of cooking, and then there's you know plenty that take a long time. But uh, for some of our you know more quicker meals, uh, just you know steaks. So I, I I probably cut less steaks out of my quarters than most, just because I prefer to keep it whole as long as possible. But I definitely do that, and I I guess I've never really thought about why. But other than just diversity of cuts of meat and such, but that probably plays into it also, Garrett. Where you know, cooking a, a, a one-inch thick steak it takes a fraction of the time as a lot of the other things we've talked about so far. So it's great to have that option in there also. Um, and to circle back to our previous um, uh, conversation, the those thick steaks, especially, I am absolutely cooking them in the cast iron. And, you know, maybe not, I won't say as hot as I can get it, but really hot, you know, where it's getting that good char, not a bark, it's getting a char. Um, you know, just a real thick, a thin char. But, uh, yeah, so those are good. And it's, it's quick, it's easy, um, and absolutely delicious. And I leave the fat on those cuts of meat, too. Hmm. Do you have a, is there a, a certain oil, like olive oil? Is that your go-to? Do you use like an avocado oil or mix with butter? Do you have, what's your go-to fat for cooking? Uh, usually I'm going to use uh, three. The, I guess you could say that like the trifecta of olive oil, uh, butter, and bacon grease hmm. to varying degrees. But almost always I'll use you know, the three of those in some combination. Bacon grease is something that uh, I do not have enough of in my life right now. That's a uh, one of yeah, the yeah. We just keep a jar of it. Oh, yeah. I, I wonder if one of the things that is kind of on my my bucket list. And obviously, if I lived in the south, this would be a different discussion because there's wild hogs and whatnot. Um, but we have a lot of black bears up here, and it's been a while since I've even attempted to to hunt one of them, but you know, I've, I've obviously read the stories and stuff about like, you know, being able to render bear fat, same thing with ducks. I mean, you can render the, the duck fat, but I don't really do it enough to, to really get that going. But I wondered, you know, if I did finally go ahead and get a tag, shoot a bear, render some of that fat, if that might not give me a similar usage as something like a, a bacon grease would. 
I'm not sure, but I don't think rendered fat is typically eaten, is it? Isn't it more for uh, preserving things like and, and rubbing on leather and such? I don't know. I think I what I've seen is that you can, like rendering it gets the, because uh, you get it into a liquid form, right? It melts down and then you end up with, you know, some little like crisp that gets discarded. And then you have that liquid form that's remaining. And then obviously that solidifies. Um, whereas with like, I think the, the ducks, it actually stays in liquid form after you render it instead of hardening. But it was my assumption. And again, maybe this is my ignorance. I, I really don't know, but I would assume that you could use it just like you would, you know, other kind of like lards or, or cooking uh, type fats that are, I guess, more solid in nature. Whereas the rendered duck fat might be more of something you could substitute for like an olive oil. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I, now that you said it, I think I have heard of rendered duck fat as the cooking process, but uh, like rendered beef fat, I don't think people use that for cooking. I, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I know I've smelled rendered beef fat, fat before that is used in like cosmetics and, uh, you know, soaps and, uh, you know, it smells and looks exactly like mink oil. And I don't want to eat mink oil. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I'll do some digging. I'll see if I can figure out what sparked that in my mind to make me think that might have been a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to uh, follow up on that also. Yeah, the um, the things that we make most, I think, right now, we end up getting a lot of stuff ground, but we tend to not get the extra beef or pork fat added usually we just get them have them grind it and then give it back to us in like one pound packages just because it's easier to pay somebody a dollar pound to do that versus getting all the stuff out and you know making the big mess and then cleaning it up just to to do the same thing but we kind of have usually like a rotation where like the go-to's would be you know like spaghetti we have that a lot um or just like venison burgers and and yeah they're dry and they kind of fall apart a little bit um, but you put a slice of cheese on, sometimes, you know, cook it with a little bit of butter or oil. And it seems to, you know, if you can keep it together, even without that added fat mixed in, I think they turn out pretty good. I mean, not as, not the same level as just like, you know, uh, a high quality beef patty, but definitely I, I think it's, it's better than you would expect. Um, and then, and then things like tacos or nachos we made the other day with, with the, uh, the ground stuff. Yeah. It just seems like for us, like the quick, the quick and dirty, like we need to eat something, just throwing out like a couple pounds of ground in the, the fridge to thaw out when you have l- like less time, that's like our go-tos. So I'm, I'm trying to expand the, you know, the, the palate, I guess, um, and, you know, figure out more dishes that we can add into that rotation to make it uh, a little bit more, I guess, well-rounded. Yeah, yeah, but you know the thing about burgers is, you know, you can thaw them out, uh, and if you have, let's say, you know, what a kid's practice is canceled or whatever happens that you end up having more time than what you thought, you can make a downright gourmet burger with a little bit minimal more effort, you know, um, so it's versatile. You know, you can just, you know, hit them in the cast iron skillet on the stovetop and be done in ten minutes. Or, you know, you can create pockets of Gouda cheese in the middle and get elaborate with it and, uh, you know, make something that's, you know, uh, a little more elaborate. But, uh, 
So I, we love burgers. We eat the heck out of them too. Yeah. Well, do you guys do you guys have them with like the normal like buns and everything, or or do you like sometimes mix it up and and have like either like keto style burgers or, or just something that's like I guess atypical? Yeah, I mean we eat so many we eat a lot of burgers, so uh, we'll do it all kinds of different ways. You know, there's sometimes where you know we'll just get really good buns and I'll you know get a, a garlic butter dousing on them and and grill them to a you know a slight char and you know just go eat the burger and bun and everything and then there's times where you know uh we just won't go through all that and we just you know maybe get the cheaper regular white buns from the store for the kids and we'll just have ours without but you know just like the burger itself you know it's a varying degree of that how much time do you have and how much effort do you want to put into it? It can be quick, easy, and simple and still good, or it can be, you know, a little bit more involving and elaborate. And, you know, of course the effort is too, though. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever use a a sous vide to cook venison at all? I have not. I've not gone into the sous vide realm and, I've threatened to, and I've threatened to, and I've threatened to, and I've talked about it, and one of these days I will for sure. I just haven't done it yet, and I don't really know why. Yeah. I mean, it seems it seems like it might be taking a little bit of the art out for you, though. I don't know if you would get quite the uh, same yeah. level of enjoyment out of a sous that you would, you know, cooking it on a, a stovetop. I think you're probably right, and I, yeah. I think you're probably right, but I, you know, I still need to try it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Do you I, have one? no, I don't, I, uh, have thought about it a few times. Um, but I think we have, we have enough kitchen utensils and, and tools right now that we don't really have the space to just add it just for the sake of adding it. Um, I need to get better at just basic level, you know, stuff before I can go something fancy like a sous vide. I will say though, one <laughs> yeah. thing, one thing that I, I do take a little bit of pride in is when I cook a, a shank in the oven, those tend to turn out really, really good. Um, I, I never, I never just, you know, take the, the scraps off the shanks anymore for, for just the grind pile. I always take those things now and, and I'll, you know, sometimes put a light sear on them in a cast iron, but ultimately just cook them in the in the oven and kind of roast them and man they they just that's like in my opinion the best way for sure to cook either the venison shanks or the uh or like wild turkey legs i guess crock pot's pretty good for them too but so to uh describe that more i've, I've never cooked a shank that way I'd, I'd like to hear how you do it yeah so where i kind of learned about that style of cooking shanks was from some of hank shaw's books He's got that buck buck moose cook or buck buck moose book that uh, has a whole bunch of venison recipes in it, and there's I don't know, I don't even know there's probably at least three four five just shank recipes, and there's one in there that was it's intended for cooking smaller shanks, uh, but it ends up turning out pretty good because you can you can basically sear the meat and then in kind of the general pan you have things like garlic and, and seasonings and 
and oils and stuff that you, you kind of cook and, and garlic and, and then you can add in a little bit of wine and kind of, you know, get that to, uh, to get some of the, you know, charred scraps off the bottom of the pan and then let that cook down. And then you end up pouring it over the meat. Anyway, you end up putting it in the oven. The, the main premise of this is you cook it sort of low and slow, like 300 degrees, uh, with some of these liquids and you let it cook for, you know, depends on the, the size of the shank, but it could be hour and a half, could be two hours, could be three hours. And eventually when, by the time it's done, it's just like when you have something slow cooked, that's got a lot of connective tissue and you can tell that it's done because all the connective tissue is now edible. It does. It's not tough anymore. It's the same type of thing in the oven. It oh, just yeah. you usually get there a little bit quicker, uh, for whatever reason when, when cooking the shanks. Uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll still have it where, you know, the, uh, the tendons at their attachment points on the bones, they'll kind of lift off and the muscle kind of get balled up a little bit. But even when I have that happen, it, it's still, the meat itself turns out just really good. I mean, the flavors, the flavors on it, I think it, it might be similar with something like a standing rib roast where you just got the connective tissue and the fat and everything that all kind of combines into that one bite. But the, the amount of layers that's in a shank when you cook it like that and you just, you take a slice off and, and you know, you have those extra liquids and, and juice and stuff that you can dip it in and you got your, you know, sides that kind of match it. It is probably one of my, you know, favorite dishes. I'd like to say it's a, it's not an acquired taste, but there's probably some people that wouldn't quite be used to it, but I, I can't imagine like somebody not liking it. I think the reason more people don't do it is just because most people aren't aware that you can cook shanks like that. Yeah, no, I think you're, t- you're spot on correct there. Um, it, it's, it's amazing how people, it's almost like people just accept the fact that the venison is gamey and it's not going to taste good. And then, and then they get their deer ground up and the rest of the family hates it. And dad basically has to power through it, even though it tastes gamey. <laughs> but there's just so, right? I mean, that's, I don't know what percentage, but there's a lot of Americans that, of hunters that probably fall under that realm. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Even my wife never, she mentioned that she never really liked venison that much growing up. They'd have it every now and then. Um, but usually it was overdone for what venison should be and ended up, you know, having a little bit of a gamey taste and, and just didn't have kind of the texture that we've known to, to grow in love with venison that's cooked right. And when I started cooking it, you know, that was kind of when she was like, oh, this is, this can be pretty good. And now she, I mean, she loves it and, and I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's varying degrees of understanding that. So you've got your average person that, you know, or a hunter that, you know, just like I described a minute ago, and then you've got, you know, the, like the middle of the road pack that said, oh, you haven't had it cooked right. But the reality is, is that in my opinion, you know, you hear how methodic I am about my preparation. Um, the, it, the work doesn't start when you pull the raw meat out of the refrigerator or the freezer to cook it. The work starts as soon as the animal hits the ground. You have got to get that meat cooled down as quickly as possible. And it really has to stay under 40 degrees. And most culinary experts are going to tell you more like 34 or 35 degrees, um, you know, during that aging process. When, when that temperature creeps up or, you know, like it used to be back in the day, 
Joe Blow goes out and kills his buck and takes it to the check-in station and drinks beers and talks with his buddy all day long in Missouri in the middle of November. It's like 70 degrees quite frequently. That animal doesn't have a chance to taste good, but most people don't ever think about that process from the time the animal hits the ground to the time they pull it out of the refrigerator, and they only isolate that short period of time of when they're cooking it. And it, in my opinion, that has, you know, uh, that's just the end of the process. And there's so many other variables that you have to account for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, really when you talk about the temperature side of things too, whenever I do an early season hunt, I mean, aging, aging venison is something I'm not really done. Cause I've, I've never really felt like I could do it well. But also if it's like an early season hunt and let's say the temperatures are like, you know, 60 or, or 70 or whatever the case may be, I always feel like it's a, you know, it's like a race against the clock to get the thing, you know, I'll usually end up just, you know, skinning or quartering it or whatever. And I'll put the quarters, you know, it's kind of a whole quarter, you know, plus the back shafts and whatever else in a cooler just to get it cooled down right away. And I've always wondered if, you know, the meat, the venison quality is lower because I do that often versus if I was able to just hang the thing up whole and let it sit for, you know, several days, even before skinning it. But I can't, I can't say the venison I have when I do it that way tastes bad. Um, but I am curious to see if there is any difference, you know, if I were to age it longer. Yeah. And dry aging is the key. You know, I mean, I've talked about the moisture content in my refrigerator, but that's, you know, that's not nearly as extreme as, you know, some people will take, you know, like on an out of state trip or whatever, and they'll just pack their cooler with ice and that meat. Uh, I will go out of my way to find dry ice because you don't want your meat sitting in water. Um, that's just, that's one of the quickest ways to ruin the good natural flavors of the meat. You know, it won't necessarily taste bad, but it won't have any flavor. Um, and uh, you know, your, your chances of that meat going bad are a lot greater when it is sitting in water. Uh, so, you know, dry ice can be a great asset. Yeah. When we went to Colorado several years ago and I shot a mule deer, uh, when we got him back to the truck, I went in town and got dry ice and I didn't know how much to get. So I got a lot. And by the time we got back home, <laughs> frozen solid, frozen solid. <laughs> the whole, whole cooler was just a big block of just rock hard meat all stuck together. Oh man, that stuff is, it's aggressive, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But even that deer ended up tasting, tasting really good. I mean, people talk about mule deer and how they're, you know, not as good tasting generally as whitetails, but I couldn't tell any difference. Yeah, I I think it's a it's got to be a pretty significant difference in diet, like to an extreme, to really notice a, a, a significant difference in taste. Uh, yeah, I'm not talking about little tiny subtle nuance or you know, but for there to be a really big difference in taste, there it's got to be pretty drastic, I think. Yeah, well, I, I kind of I wonder too, like, you know, even. If, uh, you have a deer that's say in Missouri, for example, you know, there's some areas in Missouri that are more ag than others. You know, if you shoot a deer in Northern Missouri, where it's more farmland versus like central Missouri, where it's more just like big woods and, and acorns and stuff that they're feeding on. I wonder if even that has a, some kind of an impact on the flavor profile. 
Yeah, I'm sure it is. It just seems like it's minimal, though. I mean, it's been a while since I've had a since I've eaten in northern Missouri here, but uh, like you know that I killed a buck in Nebraska earlier, and I you know I I just don't really notice a big difference in the uh, in the flavor. It might be slight, but I don't notice a whole lot. I think you're you're going to notice more from the other variables that we talked about, you know, like the cooking process or, you know, probably most impactful would be the, uh, the, the aging process or, you know, even, you know, just the processing itself from the time the animal hits the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, one of the, I guess, things that comes to mind somewhat, I guess, on especially the early season hunts, um, you know, they have the velvet hunts and things like that in like Kentucky. And from the stories I hear, it's always just miserable hot, uh, for those type of hunts. And I always wonder like, you know, how, how small is your margin of error in, in terms of being able to get the, the meat cooled down and, and processed quickly. Um, or even like elk hunting out West where it's like, you know, you might be, you know, on the order of closer to days versus just like minutes or hours that you get the thing cooled down on ice. Um, yeah, it's luckily it hasn't really been too much of an issue. It's been, I can't even think of the last time where I had any kind of meat loss, um, or even like perceived noticeable quality difference just cause I'm usually able to get the meat, uh, cut up and, and cooled down pretty quickly. Yeah. Yep. It's, uh, it's important. Yeah, I'm just looking through I'm looking through our little list that we put together before the podcast and I mean I think we hit really a lot of the things we wanted to hit in terms of deer. You know, I think the only thing that okay. we were going to talk about other than that was just, you know, wild turkeys because obviously you shoot a boatload of those. Is there do you use the same kind of principles with turkey meat that you do with deer? Do you treat the the turkey breast as kind of your fast twitch? Uh, fast and and then slow type cooking and, and your legs is more of just your um you're just like long and slow type processes yeah exactly so you know again the way i'm going to do that most often is i'm going to grill that turkey breast and you know i just just for general information again you know salt pepper garlic powder it really doesn't need anything more than that Every once in a while, I'll explore and play with other things, but that's going to be the foundation. And I, you know, I'll, I'll grill that till, you know, 130 to 135. And all the while, I'm going to have both sets of legs or more. I think there, there was one day last year where I had like legs of three turkeys, so six leg thigh combos uh, on the, on the backside of the grill as I was cooking the breast, you know, and, and again, it doesn't have to be cooked thoroughly. In fact, these things, when I pulled those thighs off, um, I, you know, they were, they were still almost rare in the middle, but it didn't matter because they still had that smoke exposure and char flavoring, um, you know, from the grilling process. And I just froze them. And then, you know, two leg thighs is enough 
basically for our whole family to have a stir fry or a shredded uh, wild turkey, you know, like a barbecue sandwich or something uh, for one whole meal for sure. And then, you know, some leftover for lunch the next day or whatever. So that, that just works out so well. I mean, you know, you're, you're already cooking the turkey breast. So those leg ties just sit on the back and mm-hmm. hang out and yep. then just throw them in the freezer and pull them out. And, you know, the cooking process has already begun. There's a better flavor to it. It, it just works out so well. Yeah. Sounds like what I need to buy is a new grill because the one I have does not work. Uh, but it would be, it sounds like pretty necessary to try and take advantage of some of these, you know, two for ones uh, or getting those things in the, the back of the grill. Although I could, I suppose, with something like the size of a turkey, use the electric smoker too to get somewhat of a similar type of thing going. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you could do that just, you know, while you're working from home one day or whatever, you know, just kind of out of sight, out of mind, and know that a few hours later, pull them off, let them cool, throw them in the freezer. Yep, yep. Oh, one thing that we did try with turkey last year that at least we liked quite a bit was um, we would just buy, like, a a set of, um, like, pizza crusts. Like you can get, you know, just regular pizza crusts, you know, that are thin or super thin or, or whole wheat or whatever. And then we would just use, you know, we, we tried it a couple of different ways that turned out pretty good, but we used like an Alfredo sauce as kind of like a base and then separately cooked mm-hmm. and diced up some, some turkey breast, threw that on there with, you know, various cheeses and just kind of seasoning and then cooked it in the oven. And that turned out phenomenal. Yeah, it sounds great. I I know there are uh, my wife and kids love uh, wild turkey nachos. So you know, instead of like a you know typical nacho, we just use uh, shredded turkey, whether it be leftover breast or even you know like thighs or whatever that's shredded, uh, and use like a homemade sweet and sour sauce over top of them and mm. cheese and, and bake and they're really good. Yeah. That sounds good. You're making my mouth water. We'll have to yeah, last, last yeah, year was not a good Turkey again. season for me. I did not end up with much, uh, wild Turkey meat. I think Sam probably ended up filling the freezer more than I did. Cause her bird was bigger than mine. And I only shot one. <laughs> so hopefully this year will be a little bit, a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was certainly going to ask that if she, if she outperformed you last. Week. Yeah, she did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, one thing that we haven't talked about was the, the groundhog that I cooked. And I know we, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we had talked about it briefly in one of the previous, maybe not, maybe that was, I don't remember else. the groundhog. Uh, yeah, I, I cooked a groundhog. So, um, you know, first of all, I'm not afraid to try anything. You know, I think that most of, uh, what we think of as, well, that can't be good is, most of it's, you know, preconceived notions or whatever that aren't really founded. So, um, I, you know, heard, you know, that groundhog is not that bad or it's good, whatever, you know, like, all right, I wanted to try it. And the, so there's a groundhog that keeps popping out over here and the neighbor wants us to get rid of him anyway. I mean, I'm sitting there watching this thing every morning eat clover and lush green grass in an old horse pasture. I'm like, this thing, ha- there's no way it can taste bad. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, TJ shot him, you know, my son shot him, and I grilled that thing. I, I just, just 
skinned it, you know, gutted it, skinned it, and I grilled it whole, knowing that I really wasn't worried about it. First of all, it's a, it a huge variable, you know, uh, and I knew that the the family would would try it, but I knew their preconceived notions would probably, uh, you know, uh, hinder their jade their opinion of it. But, yeah. Um, so I, I, in fact, I grilled it while I was grilling a turkey breast, uh, wild turkey breast. So, uh, so we had that, and then you know had the 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 groundhog to try, and like right on the hind hind legs, you know, like the 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 hamsteak part of it or whatever. Uh, you know, of course, it's real small, but that was like a perfect medium rare. And I, you know, there's only like three slices for each leg on the side of the groundhog. But so we got a few slices off of that and just tried it, you know. And Garrett, I'm telling you what, it was absolutely excellent. It was just <laughs> flat out delicious. And I was surprised at how good it tasted. Um, my, and my son really liked it. And my wife and youngest daughter were kind of like, oh, it's okay, you know. <laughs> I know exactly what it was. It was, you know, my wife picturing that groundhog. And then it was my daughter, you know, reacting to my wife's reaction. Um, but then the next night, I can't remember. I think I put it in like an apple cider vinegar and beer bath and threw some veggies into it, like potatoes and carrots and stuff. And, and I put it on the grill and did it more, you know, that low, slow style to where it was falling apart. Uh-huh. And by that time, you know, the preconceived notions were gone and all this and that, and everybody just loved it. I mean, it was so good. And then there was enough that I was able to do that for a third night. And we had neighbors down who don't eat wild game at all. They, they just don't. And uh, so of course, naturally I gave them some so they could try and didn't tell them what it was. <laughs> and they were just clamoring over how good it was and everything. And I told them it was groundhog. And I was kind of surprised. They didn't really react strongly either way. Even, you know, the wife didn't. Um, so yeah, the neighbor couple up the street, they, uh, they love groundhog and they weren't too shocked when I told them it was groundhog. So huh. is that like a lighter, a lighter meat animal or is it kind of a, a red meat? It's darker. It's a, it's a red meat. It's, uh, I mean, it's almost identical to venison, you know, huh. it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a red meat and it cooks up, uh, that like, you know, like pinkish red. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that scares me about just like cooking some random thing and trying to eat it is like not knowing is this one of those things that I have to cook, you know, well to get rid of some, you know, trichinosis or, or something. Um, or is there some other like weird thing that, you know, you have a risk of getting with whatever this obscure animal that nobody eats is. But it's like, yeah, if you check that box off, yeah. I I'm always like in in uh in theory, interested in trying like those obscure little things. Same thing with fishing. It's like you get, uh, you know, guys that are walleye fishing, you catch sheep at or something. It's like, oh, trash fish or whatever, throw them back. It's like, but how many people have actually tried it? I, I cooked one once and I didn't think it was that bad, you know? So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't think there's really a whole lot to worry about with wild animals, you know? I mean, uh, trichinosis isn't even really a thing that much anymore, but. When it was, it was because of the, the hogs being domesticated, you know, in, in the living conditions that they were, uh, you know, it was their environment. Um, and, you know, like salmonella, for example, I don't, you know, I don't ever hear 
of people contracting that from wild game. And I guess I never really even thought about it or taken into consideration. I always looked at it like my odds of getting sick or getting something bad from, uh, from meat would be much higher from a domesticated commercially raised animal than an animal in the wild. Yeah. Well, I, but I've heard, I've heard that wild pigs are especially, you know, rid, riddled with like a whole bunch of different types of bacteria and stuff. And that you like really should, it's really? like one of the animals that you should wear gutting gloves if you normally don't. Um, and that you probably should like cook it fully, but even like bears and stuff, I, I think the whole meat eater crew got trichinosis from not fully cooking a bear that they shot somewhere like Alaska or something. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, uh, I mean, with if trichinosis is a is a threat, then that's easy because it dies at 147 degrees, and you know that's um, that's a that's medium. So as long as you get to literally you get to 147.5, and uh, I mean, I think it's like that's a very scientific, um, you know, proven yeah. data point that yeah. it cannot survive. Yeah, but that's interesting. I, 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 I thought I remember. Didn't they? Somebody got sick by eating wild asparagus too. I can't remember that, but I, I hadn't heard the trichinosis thing from a wild bear. I have to check that out too. No, I've never heard the wild asparagus thing. I've heard that there's some type of thing you can get with uh, with fiddleheads if you don't boil them first, and maybe that's a wild asparagus or it's similar. I don't know. It's above my level of expertise. Yeah, we got some follow-ups from this, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got some action items from this uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have, like, a preferred method of cooking venison heart, or do you like to experiment with that one, too? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much every time is an experiment, but, you know, it's... It, some cuts of meat are just more apt to, you know, simple cooking processes. And I think the heart is one of them. Uh, so I'll just kind of talk about how I did it the last time. And I had a bunch of people reach out to me. I really do want to make a video and I will on, on this for one thing with the heart, like I said, it's just so simple. Uh, so I aged the heart for eight days and, uh, but it's so, you know, it's, it's a relatively small cut of meat anyway. So I just put it in a Ziploc bag to uh so it didn't dry out at all you know uh so it aged for eight days and then i sliced it probably a half inch thick i cut out the uh you know the uh the main arteries where they leave because they're kind of like a uh, end windpipe you know it's just real yep tough but uh, so you cut that out and then i sliced it about half inches or a half inch thick and i just used a I used a nonstick pan, I believe, and, um, you know, cooked it like on a medium high, you know, trying to get a little bit of bark on the outside. Um, and so I just used salt, pepper and garlic powder and a little bit. Uh, yeah, that was it. Salt, pepper, garlic powder and sauteed it on medium high heat until it got to like between medium rare and medium. And that's all you need. I mean, it really is one of the more simple things to prepare and it has such an excellent flavor. Um, 
that the whole family loved it. And oh, I, after I pulled it out and let it sit, I, I threw like a half an onion in the residual yep. and, uh, you know, just kind of cook that in and, um, and put some butter, you know, put a little bit of butter in there to, to get some of that residual sticky matter off the bottom of the pan and incorporate that into the onion mix and, and then, uh, top the, the heart slices with onion. And it was excellent. I sliced a little bit of a baguette and put some balsamic glaze on top. And that was really good too, but you don't need any of that. I mean, it is so good. Just, just sliced and eaten, you know, with, uh, with light seasoning, even it has such a great natural flavor. Do you, and you know, we were, go ahead. When you were, when you cut it, do you, do you slice it from like, like the bottom up? where you just like cut off the very tip at the bottom and then you go up a half inch cut off there to where you, each one of your slices has like the little four chambers in it or the two chambers, I guess, um, for bottom and top. And then, you know, do you clean out the little corday in, in the middle or are you, you slicing it from a different, uh, a different plane? No, just like you said, I just start with, you know, my first slice is the, the very small end, like the nipple end or whatever it looks like. And then, you know, so you basically you're going against the grain like you would with a, a steak, yep, you know, or yep. most cuts of steak anyway. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I'll clean up the, the, the bigger pieces, but I don't clean up out anything out of the middle. Um, and this one, you know, that heart, there is some, you know, tougher linings to it and everything. But, I mean, if the worst thing that happens is you, you got to reach in your mouth and pull a piece out that's a little bit tough, you know, whatever. That doesn't bother me. Okay. Yeah, The uh, that's one piece that I've started to always uh, take as well as the heart. It, like you said, it's just, it's a little bit different. It doesn't have, I mean, it's a different type of muscle physiologically. Um, it doesn't have quite the same texture, but it is kind of unique and, and good in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about the collagen and connective tissue, you know, and that stuff is good for you. Uh, if you want healthy joints, eat things that have collagen and connective tissue in it. If you want a healthy heart, you know, and this kind of ring near and dear to me, as you know, I had a little yep. bit of a health scare here recently. And, uh, you know, the idea of eating a heart to have a healthy heart certainly, uh, you know, resonates with me. Is there any other organs that you will take, like liver or anything else, or like uh, call fat? I I haven't uh, messed with it yet. I should. I thought about that as I cleaned my last year last week on the call fat. Um, I like calf liver, but I've, I've never I've never experimented with with deer liver. But I definitely should, and I'm sure one of these days I will. Mm-hmm. How about the neck? Anything special you do with the neck? Like big roast or are you more of a cut the meat off the, the spine and the neck and then do something else with it? Usually it's I, my favorite way is I would like to incorporate the neck meat into the front shoulder so that I can just like roll it over and, you know, just like flap it over. Yep. And because it's that same style of meat, you know, that it's, it's it's not going to cook well in a high heat, medium rare environment, right? It's, it needs to cook low and slow and break down. 
So I like to leave it attached to my front shoulders and just kind of flap it over. And if I have to, I'll tie it with butcher's twine and just, you know, smoke it or however I'm cooking that front shoulder. It just, it works out really well to be a part of it. Hmm. And that way, again, you know, it may be more than what we would ever eat in, you know, three, four, five meals, but I'd rather freeze cooked meat than raw meat. Yeah. Yeah. I did make a neck roast once with just like the whole, you know, section and it was really good. Um, the, the, the one thing I did notice was if you, if it cooled down a little bit too much, then, you know, kind of the juices from that connective tissue almost left like a little film on the top of your mouth, but the flavor was, was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that before also where if that, you know, if the, those high fat, uh, pieces of meat cool down too much, you know, that, that fat can definitely coat the top of your mouth, but that's going to be the same with, uh, anything you know, with the, yeah. Uh, yeah. With a grass fed beef or whatever the case may be. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump up on, uh, on the podcast today and, and increase my knowledge base. This is a fun one. This is uh, a little bit different than the norm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree, 100%. It was uh, very enjoyable. Well, like I said, appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to go and eat some dinner, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Awesome. Sounds good, Garrett. Thank you for having me, and we'll talk soon. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes, and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.